flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Hey, Flatlanders, it's me, one of your co-hosts, Laura Mendenhall. And I'm your other host, Lindsay. So we are so excited to have a couple of guests on today to talk about all things grasslands. So we've got Rachel Roth and Nicole Brown joining us from Grassland Groupies, and all of us go by she, her. Rachel and Nicole, you guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, uh, I'm Rachel, (laughs) and I like birds. (laughs) It's true. She does. I'm Nicole. I like bugs. They're way cooler than birds. And you guys are, you, okay. Tell us about Grassland Groupies. Yeah. So Grassland Groupies is a nonprofit um, that Rachel and I started. um, And we're really just here to kind of be the PR team for grasslands. And we just really hope to inspire the conservation and love of grasslands that we feel is kind of missing in our world today. Forests get a lot of love. Oceans get a lot of love, but grasslands, they sometimes go unnoticed. We're here to change that. No. <laughs> As Flatlanders, I think we all can relate to that feeling of Kansas being overlooked because it is a quote unquote flatland or a grassland. And that's kind of a universal story, it's that, story that grasslands go through. So uh, yeah, grasslands are fantastic, as we all know. <laughs> Yeah, they are. And I'm already going to go off on a tangent here. Um, (laughs) So I was thinking about this last night. My favorite book is Barbara King Solvers, or one of my favorite books is Barbara King Solvers Animal Vegetable Miracle. And in it, she laments the fact that her elementary age kids, they do all these art projects and they they lived in Tucson. They do all these art projects around the seasons And it's like fall is red oak leaves falling from the trees and winter is snowy mountains and spring is daffodils. And Mm. she was just upset that like, why can't we celebrate the desert? And I feel the same way about Kansas. Like growing up here, my vision of the seasons is totally skewed towards some kind of New England type of vision. And I I grew up knowing very little about the grasslands. Is that your guys' experience as well? Yeah, I I think it's pretty universal for Kansans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like everybody should know that Indian grass turns red and like this emerald green in the late fall Mm -hmm. and turkey vultures come back in March. And yeah, so I'm just I'm excited about the mission of your nonprofit because I think it is an area that we need to just get people so excited about grasslands. This is our home. So happy you guys are here. (laughs) Happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited you guys are here too. Um, I think that kind of is a good segue into the first question that we're going to ask you guys. Could you define and like get our audience excited about the three different types of grasslands that can be found in Kansas? Absolutely. Uh, So yes, this is Nicole here. And in the U.S. in general, we have a lot of different grasslands to like, we have desert grasslands, we have like savannas that include trees but in Kansas we have the prairie and in you know just this whole midwest area we have the lovely american prairie and the prairie 
can be short grass, it can be mixed grass, and it can be tall grass. And we are lucky enough in Kansas to have all three of those. And, you know, the the names kind of speak for themselves. A short grass prairie is going to have mostly shorter grasses, and a tall grass prairie is going to have taller grasses. Um, But they are also pretty unique in other ways, too. Uh, They're going to have different kinds of animals. They are going to have different kinds of uh, regimes that we can use to keep them healthy. And they are really pretty unique, even when we have, you know, this kind of vague mixed grass prairie title, like what does that even mean? (laughs) Um, it, It looks completely different from short grass or the tall grass prairie. So they really are awesome. And I wish that people took more time to really spend the time to be in a prairie and just like be in that atmosphere and appreciate all of the birds and all and, like just everything that's going around or going on around them. Cause they very much are very unique. Uh, we should probably also yeah. mention that there's a gradient that they go across the state which is directly correlated to rainfall. And that's what kind of creates this, uh, from a landscape perspective, a totally different look and feel. I almost said mouthfeel, which is like a food description, but I guess if you could eat (laughs) the short grass prairie, it would have a different mouthfeel, I guess. Very spiny and cactusy. Very crunchy. Yes. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like Nicole said, standing in either one of those landscapes or even in parts of the gradients in between them, you get a completely mm-hmm. different picture of a different ecosystem because they are. Yeah. And so the rainfall gradient, if, if folks haven't seen that map, it's really impressive. It's a rainbow basically across the state that shows the um, lower amount of precipitation in the West all the way to like really high. I forget what it is in the Southeast corner. It's like 40 some inches a year. Yeah, it goes from 10 inches in the West and like 50-ish in the East. So pretty impressive. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Nicole, so with these three, so short grass, mixed grass, tall grass, there are Mm -hmm. distinct differences. Are there any common species associated with each one of them or that mix? Or like, what are some species that we can be looking at? Of plants. Oh, I was like, mm, I have a list of birds, but okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, and birds, Rachel yeah. and the birds. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, short, short grass prairie is going to be more of, you know, shorter grasses. So grandmas, things like that. Um, tall grass prairie is going to be our big blue stem, our Indian grass, our switch grass. And mixed grass can literally be a mixture of those, but there are some grasses that kind of only exist in a mixed grass prairie as well. Um, so it it's kind of a hard question to answer, um, but yeah, and it and it depends on if you're in the northern part of the short grass prairie versus the southern grass part of the short grass prairie. It's it's yeah, the prairie is very dynamic and kind of hard to pinpoint anything quite like that. I will say um, the short grass prairie is doing fairly well just throughout like its entire range. And that is not true for the tall grass prairie. So the tall grass prairie is a critically endangered ecosystem with less than 4% of it remaining. Uh, Some estimates even say as low as 2% remaining. So it's a very unique ecosystem that we are lucky enough in Kansas to have most of 
the remaining tall grass prairie um, right here in Kansas in the Flint Hills. So really, really cool place. Seriously, it's beautiful. Every time I drive through that area, I cry a little bit. <laughs> oh. Dude, me too. Uh, <laughs> it's like overwhelming. It is. Yes. It is. It's like it is. Massive expanse of like a green ocean, but it's all grass. Yes. So where, where could, if people wanted to see a representative example of each of those types, so we already mentioned the Flint Hills, Tallgrass Prairie, like where, where could people go to yeah. see where are some good spots? Yeah. So in the Tallgrass Prairie, um, places like the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve um, is a really, really great place to visit. Uh, all over their website, you'll see tall in the fall. So visit in the fall when the grasses are tall, when you see those big blue stem reaching 12, 14 feet up into the air. Uh, if you go in the spring, it's going to be a lot of rubble or maybe it just got burned and you won't see much at all. <laughs> so visit the tall grass prairie in the fall. Otherwise, you're not doing it, it justice. Hey, uh, I would for, like to make a note yeah. on that. I was just there not very long ago after they burned, and it's still a really beautiful place. All it of the is. little grasses were coming up, and it was like a bright, uh, comforting green color. I, I, I don't, I shouldn't describe it as being comforting. It was just like a really happy oh. green. Like I just wanted to lay on the ground and stay there forever. Yes, I was going to say oh. I take issue with that as well. One of my favorite <laughs> memories of going to Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve specifically involved going out like when it was cold as heck and everything was dead and burned and there were just mm -hmm. like dottings of horned larks on the hills singing just like lonely Aww. denizens of this like almost volcanic wasteland landscape it was ethereal oh okay i'm so sorry i take it back <laughs> visit it all year round but you know if you're only going to be able to go out once go in the fall because it really is breathtaking. And like we said, even in winter, you still have all these beautiful colors that these grasses keep all winter long. So just gorgeous. <laughs> but going west, uh, the mixed grass prairie, we unfortunately in Kansas don't really have really good places to visit either mixed grass or short grass prairie, in my opinion. Um, there are some really cool options out there. So for the mixed grass prairie, the Ogla National Grasslands is actually in Nebraska, um, but it is a beautiful piece of land and I highly recommend the trip. It's not too far north, so I, I believe in you guys, you can do it. <laughs> and then for shortgrass prairie, um, again, the shortgrass prairie is quite large. It goes all the way like well into Canada, but in Kansas, we do have our new state park, the Little Jerusalem Badlands State Park, um, that does have some very, very nice shortgrass prairie, even though, you know, the grass isn't technically the main attraction to some people, <laughs> I would go there just to see the prairie, so... And you said short grass. That that's a good place to see some of your grandmas, like blue grandma, uh -huh. hairy grandma, yeah, all the eyebrow looking for, dudes. Yes, that <laughs> yeah, eyebrow, eyelashes. I love those grasses. Um, those are yes. really cool to see. So, like Rachel said, they either look like an eyebrow or an eyelash, like fake eyelashes. Yeah, they're so interesting <laughs> that they're becoming somewhat popular in landscaping. I see them all the time they in are. Wichita. Yeah, like as residential. Like there's some growing outside of the local Whole Foods on my side of town. Like <laughs> yes, I was just gonna mention that. <laughs> Hopefully, that's the is that a native variety? Do you know? I I'm not confident because I only know how to okay. identify the native varieties and it looks like it to me, but uh, that's with the blind spot that includes other grandmas I'm not familiar with. Yeah. So, okay. So Whole Foods parking lot, everyone, <laughs> I mean, or <laughs> Western Kansas. Or something, but yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Okay, so I guess this is a good time to get into disturbance regimes, which I think one of you already mentioned. Um, so part of what makes a grassland is these disturbance regimes. Can you go into that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, and this is Rachel. I'm going to tackle this one because I think disturbances is one of my favorite pieces of the grassland ecosystem because it's one of the things that keeps any grassland ecosystem a grassland. And so the animals and plants that are forming this community are really adapted to whatever particular disturbance is a part of its natural life history, right? And so when we're talking about all of these different types of habitats, whether it's the short mixed tall grass prairie or any other type of grassland in the United States, uh, what is healthy to that habitat is going to look different. Uh, but generally speaking, we look at things like biodiversity and heterogeneity to establish how healthy and functioning this ecosystem is on a broader scale. And so what that means is that as long as disturbances are managed correctly, um, biodiversity we'd expect to be high. And that is directly tied to how heterogeneous the uh, landscape is, which is a fancy way of saying like how how differently managed is this landscape? Like, is there a disturbance that's affecting the entire landscape as a whole every single year without end? That's a problem because it's creating a landscape that's identical across the board. It's homogenous. But a grassland really thrives on having disturbances affecting different portions of that broader landscape. And that's what brings in all of these different animals that rely on different types of like micro habitats within this ecosystem. So I'll give you an example, I guess. Um, and maybe Nicole will talk in more in detail about things like prairie dogs that form almost little micro disturbances <laughs> on, on parts of the prairie. Uh, but, you know, fire and grazing are the primary dis disturbances uh, for our grasslands here in Kansas that keep that system healthy. And so uh, when a piece of that ecosystem is burned, uh, it creates a sort of staggered effect where on one hand, there's a piece of the landscape that is going to be fairly short. It'll attract a lot of grazers, which will continue to mow that down and keep it fairly short. Uh, and that will provide habitat for different shorebirds, for example. Uh, killdeer, uh, buff-breasted sandpipers we're just talking about during their migration route and uh, golden plovers. Uh, there's so many different animals, common nighthawks that uh, specifically look for that really shorter area. Um, on the other hand, it allows a different piece of that same habitat to be pretty old growth. It's got, a, you know, you'd think of like an old growth forest when you use that phrase normally, but I don't know, I guess like on a smaller time scale it's kind of a similar concept where you have these like older uh, stands of grasses that form these very dense sort of habitats that have a lot more cover. And that can be really important for animals like the Henslow sparrow that really rely on that specific habitat type in order to thrive. And then of course, there's plenty of animals that will preferentially use both parts of that landscape. So prairie chickens, greater prairie chickens, will look for more uh, short areas to lek on and do their dancing displays. Because I mean, you can't, prairie chickens at least, can't do a lecking mating dance 
when the grass is nine feet tall. Uh, not that it would be in the spring anyway, but hopefully you know what I mean. So they're looking for parts of the landscape that are a little bit shorter where they can do their displays. And then the hens, when they're ready to go make their nests, are going to be looking for parts of the landscape that have more cover uh, so that they can more successfully hide. And so when the disturbance is affecting the entire landscape in all of the same way, it's really taking away from what makes a grassland dynamic. And you'd expect to see the number and variety of animals using that habitat to go way down. I think you explained that very, very well. Um, gosh, okay, so like to some, so hom homogenous uniform landscapes are not gonna support as many or as high of a biodiversity or as many species as landscapes that are hetero <laughs> heterogeneous. <laughs> It's such a hard it word. Is. It is a hard word. You want a patchy landscape. Patchy, yes. Mosaic. Yes, there you go. <laughs> you don't want it. So patchy mosaic, good. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, cool. And you mentioned Hensel, Sparrows, Greater Prairie Chicken, um, Regal Fritillary is one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I always forget about butterflies, even though... <laughs> They're so important uh, and a really bright and vivid part of our grasslands. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, regal fritillaries have very different landscape uses. Um, my most familiarity is with birds, of course. Nicole, can you elaborate on some of the ways that butterflies use the landscape differently? Yeah, for sure. Um, when we talk about, you know, grasslands, we want to just talk about the grasses. But there's a lot of other plants going on there too. Um, but if a certain species of grass, like <laughs> Johnson grass or something, uh, takes over a landscape and it just becomes this, you know, homogenous one species landscape, it doesn't leave space for some of our wildflowers and shrubs and even trees can be parts of grasslands as well. And if you don't have that diversity of the other plants there, you're not going to have the insects, um, which will also affect the birds and everything else. So it really starts with the plants. If you have a nice, healthy, different kinds of plants and, and flowers and things like that going on, you'll have lots of different kinds of bugs that can really have success there. And then you just go on up the food chain. So, yeah. yeah. And the same things that you know, I was using birds as my example, but those different like disturbance management practices also affect the plant life. And that's a, a huge part of it too. So thanks mm -hmm. for bringing back the plants. Monoculture, I think is the <laughs> word you're looking for with like that, just yes. one species in the Johnson grass that Nicole mentioned is an invasive species. So I think it's Mediterranean, right? I don't know. I just hate it. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think uh, as far as our grasslands go, that landscape sort of perspective is really important. And I know we, we use the phrase uh, patchwork or mosaic, but it is important that the patchwork is of different uh, types of grassland and not like grassland mixed in with a lot of uh, other land uses. Mm -hmm. Because for a lot of our grassland species, having that landscape scale that they can exist in is pretty important to their health and is a lot of why we're currently seeing such a huge decline in grassland animals. It's because we keep kind of fragmenting up what remains of that grassland and the Flint Hills are not going to be as effective or, 
or as beautiful uh, a place to be if, for example, that landscape becomes a fragmented patch of Flint Hills across that range. Yes. Devastating. I would literally yeah. cry. And yeah, what? Well, oh, go <laughs> ahead. I was going to say really quick, you know, the Flint Hills now exists almost entirely because it was so rocky. So we could not till it and make it become, um, you know, pasture or uh, cropland, which is one of the biggest things that are facing grasslands is they just become used for other things. Um, but we couldn't do that with the Flint Hills because it was so rocky. Um, and now those rocks are now being mined out of the Flint Hills and used in landscaping and building houses and things like that. Um, so it, we might lose the Flint Hills yet. So it's really important to raise awareness for these overlooked ecosystems and try to get people excited about them. Well, and I, I'm glad you guys mentioned habitat loss and fragmentation because in a previous podcast with Kent Fricky, we were talking about environmental stochasticity and how, you know, in some of these ecosystems, there's drought cycles, there's heavy rain, there's burning, there's all these disturbances and you really need a lot of habitat that's unfragmented in order yeah. to sort of withstand all of those naturally occurring disturbances. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of our grassland animals, you know, they need that space because they are highly migratory too. So you need a big chunk of land to support these guys. <laughs> uh, another reason why that disturbance is so important is because it really stops succession from happening on a grassland, which uh, usually is either going to occur in like grasslands converting to a woodland habitat or grasslands converting to a more desert ha habitat, which uh, is what we expect to see happening more and more as uh, climate change and uh, droughts and changes to the water table that are resulting from climate change and development and cedar invasion even changes the water table. So uh, preventing all of these types of succession is really important. And uh, the disturbance is what allows those hardy grasses that are used to being burned down every year uh, and all the forbs that thrive on that and the animals too. That's what allows them to be successful and to stay a grassland. I was just going to say, so you mentioned succession and you, you bring up cedars, Rachel. And I think I, I've heard a lot of confusion over Eastern red cedar. Is it native? Is it invasive? Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Could you give us kind of an overview of, of what is going on there? What's the deal with Eastern red cedar? Yeah. So Eastern red cedar is a native juniper tree. And, uh, Although they are native, you sometimes hear people referring to them as invasive or something like that. And I think in this context, people are usually referring to its uh, its tendency to sort of uh, colonize grassland environments. It's usually considered a primary successor in our grassland ecosystems. So one of the first stages to uh, grassland converting to a woodland is these sort of uh, ambitious red cedars cropping up in the landscape and kind of paving the way for more trees to move in. Uh, they just really like to, to move in and establish themselves in grasslands. And so uh, when there are not the natural disturbances that you'd expect to see in a healthy grassland ecosystem, then there's nothing standing in the way of those red cedars and naturally they just invade the grassland ecosystem. 
Uh, and that behavior makes them a little bit of a problem. And they also really love water. There's been some fascinating uh, data coming out about how much a, a red cedar can affect the water table and in turn affect things like small streams uh, that are disappearing in Western Kansas. And there's a number of reasons for those things. Ecosystems are not like a simple like input and output of cause and effect, but we do know that Eastern red cedars do affect how our landscape uses water. And that's pretty incredible. It's like one species that can do so much. What? I've never heard that before. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> So since those red cedars are threatening Kansas prairies, are there any other invasives that um, people should be aware of? Oh, there's too many. We could just have a whole episode on invasive species, and I'm sure you have people that you work with who just know them like the back of their hand. Um, John Grass. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was waiting for you to come back off mute. Uh, yeah, Johnson Grass, um, which is actually toxic. So it, it is poisonous. Uh, it can be pretty hazardous to livestock for that reason, which, you know, as an ag state, that is really important to Kansans, especially Kansans that uh, own and manage grassland habitats for their livestock. Um, it contains cyanide, which is kind of crazy. And didn't it send you to the ER, Nicole? It did. You no cut way. <laughs> what? I haven't heard That's this. why she hates it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing. We'll just cut out the embarrassing parts and say that I was removing Johnson grass by hand, which is already not a good idea. Wear gloves. Um, but I was removing Johnson grass by hand and it sliced my pinky finger open, like, like deep, like down to the bone. I saw parts of my finger that no one should ever have to see of their finger. Um, and I was just bleeding everywhere and I was by myself out in the field and I was just like, oh my gosh, what do I do? It was a whole thing. Um, that's the only time I've ever had to go to the ER and the only time that I've ever had to get stitches. So took two, three stitches to get my finger back together. So <laughs> so you have like a personal vendetta against Johnson grass is what I, I do. I do. <laughs> it's a good plant to have a personal vendetta against, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So lots of invasives. But mm -hmm. I want to point out that Eastern red cedar, yes, it's everywhere. It's terrible. Even though it's native, it becomes invasive. Yes. Um, in, in Riley County, we have a program where you can go and cut down Eastern red cedar from, I think some of their park properties and then use it as your Christmas tree, uh -huh. so yeah. just like along the lines of reorienting, reorienting yourself to what, what seasons look like in Kansas. Um, imagine yourself with an Eastern red cedar Christmas tree mm -hmm. and they smell good. They do smell good. They do have <laughs> that going for them. <laughs> And, and they're not a true cedar. Mm -mm, they're a juniper. So they're a juniper, Juniperus virginiana. Yeah. Um, so getting into some of the more interesting critters of the grasslands, which we've already touched upon a few. Um, I wondered, okay, first of all, do you guys, are you aware of the secret pronghorn herd along the turnpike? <laughs> secret pronghorn by, herd? <laughs> by the, um, the cattle pens? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Is it not so, so secret? Is that like know. common knowledge? Well, you're asking a bunch of nerds if they know about a secret <laughs> pronghorn herd. So, I mean, it is, it's there. That is true. Okay, well, for listeners who don't know, if you're on the turnpike, somewhere around the bazaar cattle crossing, which has an amazing overlook. So you should pull off, get, get photos. Um, you can sometimes see pronghorn. 
And I, I, I asked a KDWPT biologist about this a few years back, and he confirmed how many are in the herd. But I think it's like it's a pretty small herd, and it's left over from a restocking effort. But pronghorn in particular, I think, are a really interesting prairie species. I don't know if you guys want to talk about pronghorn or what else, but it's one of my favorites. Dibs. Okay. So wow. <laughs> Rachel, take it away. Yeah. I, I'll try to be brief because honestly, we could talk about this kind of stuff for literal hours, but pronghorns are super fascinating in my opinion for two reasons. Number one, um, their uniqueness in terms of the entire planet. So they are most closely related out of every other mammal on the planet, their, their closest living relatives are giraffe and okapi. So that gives you an idea of how, bar how far back in time you need to go uh, to find where these guys diverged from any other living animal on the planet today. And that leads me to like, I guess the second thing, which is kind of the same thing, which is that they are a relic of the ancient Kansas prairies or the ancient like North American prairies, uh, which I mean, were just absolutely incredible. There are so many animals here that you would recognize as maybe not belonging in North America, but as certainly like body plans and types of animals that you have seen before in places like Africa and South America. Um, there used to be American cheetahs. We had lions. Uh, camels actually as a group were born in North America and just migrated into Africa and Asia. So camels were like their origins came from the same origins as the prairie in North America, and they evolved to be grassland animals. And we had like giraffe looking grassland camels, like it's crazy. So what I'm trying to say is that the pronghorns are the last remnant of this more ancient prairie that has otherwise mostly gone extinct, unfortunately. Uh, and they are super incredibly fast. They have just outstanding, far reaching, wide vision. And it seems kind of useless if you look at them on today's prairie, because like, what are they running from? Coyotes? <laughs> uh, the babies are at risk from coyote predation. But once they're fully grown, there's really nothing that can catch a pronghorn, nothing uh, non-human uh, on the landscape anyway. And that's because all of their ancient predators and the other ancient animals that used to exist alongside them in large herds have gone extinct. There are no longer American cheetahs chasing them on the plains or uh, huge herds of other uh, gazelle and antelope-like animals. So yeah, it's it's such a cool animal and it's so built for speed that it cannot even jump over fences effectively. So it's it's so unique and that uniqueness has to do with these like ancient origins that, yeah, I, oh, it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> There it is, is amazing. There's a book out that I'm going to suggest. If you guys haven't already read it, uh, it's called American Serengeti. Yeah. It's really good. Um, well, I haven't read the whole thing. I'm only a couple of chapters in. But so far, it's really good. And for our listeners, I highly recommend giving it a read because it does talk about um, what uh, North America used to be like. And it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and the pronghorn chapter in particular is my favorite from that book. It goes into everything Rachel just talked about and then some. <laughs> and can we just establish it's pronghorn? It's not It's not antelope, right? No. 
I mean, that's like a colloquial sort of reference, but it is the just pronghorn is the proper name. Mm-hmm. Okay, noted. And they have horns, but they do shed their horns. So are they antlers? Are they horns? The pronghorn is a mystery. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and they eat forbs, right? I don't think they eat grass. I think they only eat forbs. I don't know that actually. Okay, but I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, I mean, that would be on brand with a lot of the other ancient mammals that have gone extinct since then. Um, mm-hmm. Like prehistoric Kansas used to be a lot more uh, of a savanna that had, I mean, we still have savannas in Kansas, uh, but it used to be really widespread that there were a lot of woody shrubs and woody trees that filled the landscape uh, at different varying levels of canopy. And so those sorts of food resources used to be a lot more common. And that's probably one reason why we have so few of them left. As in what it, just the pronghorn. <laughs> what um, What is a forb? I didn't even think. Like, let's define grass versus forb. Nicole, go. <laughs> um, I mean, a forb is like our wildflowers it's a plant that has a flower and it's going to be uh just a slightly different structure so yeah at its most basic a forb is going to be wildflowers and things like that versus a grass or woody vegetation okay so cool cool new word for people forb (laughs) we will post a definition in the show notes so what are some other cool species that you guys like or favorite species. I'm just going to let Nicole fill this entire section. Ready, go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. Do you have an hour to talk about prairie dogs? Yeah. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, but yeah, prairie dogs are one of my absolute favorite grassland species, like in the whole world. Um, I just love them. They're fascinating little creatures. I know that there's a lot of hate around them, um, but we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about how awesome they are. They live in these, oftentimes, especially the species that we have here in Kansas, which is the black-tailed prairie dog. There's actually five species of prairie dogs, um, but we have the black-tailed prairie dog here in Kansas. Um, and they can live in very large groups, and those are often called towns. And those towns are really helpful for the prairie dog, but they're also helpful for a lot of other species of animals as well. And there have been multiple studies looking at just how many different animals are like highly reliant on prairie dog towns. And the number currently is at about 250 different species of animals. Um, So we're not talking about just like, oh, their burrows can house toads sometimes. Like there are over 250 animals that are highly correlated with prairie dog towns. So pretty fascinating. And they have like not only the towns, but I love their communication that goes on. So these guys have some of the most complicated languages that we know of in the animal kingdom, even according to some people like Dr. Konstolbachikov, who is my idol, he says that it's even more complicated and more uh, like complex than like dolphins or whales or chimps, these animals that we think of having pretty complicated languages, prairie dogs just blow that out of the water. Um, And a lot of those uh, calls and things that they are using is to identify predators. These guys are like little potatoes on in the grassland. Lots of different things (laughs) love to eat them. 
Um, so they have to be able to identify predators. So a lot of their calls are just saying, hey, there's a hawk over there. Hey, there's a human over there. So they can identify what kind of a predator it is, but they can also describe that predator. There's this really, really cool experiment that Dr. Konslobodjikov put out where he actually had um, stu grad students go out into a prairie dog uh, colony and he had like the same person go out in different colors of clothing and the call of the prairie dog al alerting the rest of the group about this person would change slightly. So they found out, you know, they were describing the colors of the shirt. So I just think that's fascinating. And there's, you can look in more into his work. It's really, really cool. He also did some work in a lab um, looking at like then making up new words for like a black triangle and things like that. So, you know, you don't see triangles just out in the wild. So they had to make up a new word for that. Just absolutely fascinating. I love them. They're cute. That's another bonus. Um, but yeah, I love them. Prairie potatoes. Yes, prairie That's potatoes. Great. <laughs> where can where can people see prairie dog towns in Kansas? Uh, there are actually quite a few. So uh, here in Wichita, I think one of the closest is actually going to be um, in Hutchinson. So back behind the Home Depot, I believe in Hutchinson, they actually have a really fairly good sized prairie dog colony there that you know the city has fully embraced they even have if you search like prairie dog colony hutchinson like google will take you directly there like they have it on google maps like this roadside attraction of this prairie dog town just in the middle of the city super cool you leave a review and be like five stars five stars prairie cute. dogs are awesome yeah yeah, yeah. please <laughs> Uh, there is also a pretty good sized colony on the north side of Quivira National Wildlife Refuge that you can also find things like burrowing owls at. So burrowing owls is one animal that definitely loves prairie dog towns. So you can find burrowing relies owls. Relies on them. <clears throat> yeah, relies on them. Not just likes them, <laughs> relies on them. In places that prairie dogs have gone extinct, we actually are having to make artificial burrows for the burrowing owls. Because even though they can dig their own burrows, Prairie dogs are better at it, so they usually just take over old abandoned prairie dog burrows, but, you know. I I think there's also one, there's quite a few on, like, the north side, northwest portion of Kansas, but I can't give exact, uh, like, coordinates or anything like that. So those are two that are kind of in the middle of the state that are pretty easy to get to. There and is isn't there... Park called, oh, yeah. Uh, there's a dog state park. I haven't been there, there yet. Yeah, I haven't been. There is Prairie Dog State Park, um, and they do have prairie dogs. But apparently, there used to be like a giant prairie dog statue, and now it's not there. So I'm just, I'm just really sad, and oh. you know, I kind of feel like I should boycott them because, yeah, <laughs> a weird hill to die on. I know, I know. <laughs> the giant yeah. prairie dog. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think for if you look at satellite imagery, if you just go to Google Earth, there's a there's a distinct signature for prairie dog towns, right? Like you can see the the holes and the vegetation missing. Absolutely. Yeah. Prairie dogs change yeah. the landscape that they are a part of. And that's part of the reason why so many animals rely on them. It's not just for their burrows, but they actually, you know, kind of clip down their front lawn around their burrows. And so they can't really exist in tall grass prairies. It's only going to be mixed grass and short grass prairies. And they are constantly chewing down all of that vegetation around so that they can see predators coming towards them. Because again, 
potatoes. So <laughs> they have to be able to see what's going on around them. But by changing the landscape in that way, they're also helping out a lot of different animals. There's actually been studies showing that we get more wildflowers and forbs and a higher diversity of grasses on prairie dog towns. So yeah, they are amazing architects. Please stop the prairie dog hate. So it's, so- it's starting to sound like we need to have a whole episode just on prairie dogs. 100%. <laughs> Yes. Wait for my dogs to stop breaking. Can I put that on the list? (laughs) We actually have, I think our very first uh, podcast that we have, The Best Biome, was about prairie dogs. So I go on a whole rant, just saying. (laughs) Think think of all the things you didn't get to say that you could say on another podcast about prairie dogs. (laughs) Um, Yet another podcast. Yes. I feel like there's there's going to be like ten spinoff episodes of this episode. Oh, for sure, <laughs> there's just at least. so many details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's endless, and that's because I think the things that make grasslands fascinating are absolutely endless. And yes. any tiny like metaphorical or literal rock you overturn is going to uncover something incredible and new. And a lot of it hasn't been studied until somewhat recently, just because there's been almost a blind spot. Uh, for at least some grassland questions in terms of research. So there's, we're always learning new stuff about them too. Okay, cool. Absolutely. And hopefully that's hopefully that's trickling down to like elementary age kids because honestly, again, going back to like how we celebrated the seasons growing up in elementary school, I had no idea I lived in a grassland. Aww. So yeah, how sad. My heart. <laughs> Maybe I was just a stupid little kid. <laughs> don't think no. that that's the problem. Absolutely not. That was the same situation for me too. Man. Yeah, there's okay. a lot of grassland blindness out there. I'm going to steal that from the indefensive plants people, but uh yeah. Grassland <laughs> blindness or what we always say grassland erasure. Yeah. Yeah, a mm. lot of cool grassland animals um people kind of talk about the animal and talk about how cool it is, but they completely remove it from the ecosystem they're from and putting the animals back into that ecosystem and like looking at how they fit into that landscape makes for so many more questions and so many more interesting discoveries. And honestly, I think Nicole and I have talked about this quite a lot that um, some of the most interesting things about animals on the prairie is more about their relationships with the other things living there and less about like how they as individuals are adapted, you know, like there's a, such a cool story for how these relationships form. And like, I mean, even with prairie dogs, how many did you say like 250 animals have some kind of beneficial relationship with prairie dogs? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's so cool. And if we don't even know that we live in a grassland, then how are we (laughs) supposed to start learning about all those cool things and how can we, fall absolutely in love with grasslands is the ultimate question because you can't if you don't even know that it's there yeah mm-hmm. preach it's true. absolutely so, so speaking of uh questions about grasslands or grasslands <laughs> however you worded that um <laughs> like why do we even have grasslands here i mean millions of years ago this place used to be covered in an ocean or a shallow inland ocean and mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's grass everywhere like what the heck happened Oh boy, man, that is, that is such a question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, you know, almost like the geologic history and the evolutionary history of grasslands and the animals and plants that like sprung up to take advantage of those landscapes should be like a full 
discussion because there's so much cool stuff in that question. Um, you know, for Kansas, when the glaciers receded, a lot of what remained was uh, more of a grassland ecosystem. But, you know, there was a, a conversion over time in our history uh, where at one point, a lot of the grasslands, I don't know about Kansas specifically, but a lot of our North American grasslands were more of a rainforested environment. And mm -hmm. when grasses were born, <laughs> uh, they, they began to create this new type of ecosystem um, that would almost like fill in the gaps between what had enough water to sustain those really uh, big thirsty plants like ferns and trees and things that really require a lot of water. And then, you know, on the other hand, desert. So things that have to be really xeric. Um, we, at the very beginning, talked about the rainfall gradient and how that affected the types of grassland. And that's true for every grassland that exists. There's, there's some sort of gradient affected by um, either flooding or by uh, precipitation of some kind. And so, you know, through geologic time too, when things began to dry out, grasses moved into these landscapes where they really couldn't support a lot of trees. And this new type of ecosystem was born. And with it, so many iconic animals that we have today, including like most of our livestock. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, what's really cool about grasslands is that human history is also super wrapped up in grasslands. You know, that's, I think, why grasslands are one of the more endangered ecosystems right now. Uh, because humans have always lived alongside grasslands. Humans have created grasslands where there used to be deciduous forests in places like Europe. And humans were born in grasslands in Africa. And so when we uh, look at a landscape and how we can live there and use that landscape, we're really drawn to those grassland environments where a lot of our crops and livestock naturally would be occurring in too. And uh, it's also really fertile ground and really easy to build on. So. I think humans have always been really attracted to those landscapes too. And that didn't even really answer your question, but I hope I <laughs> approximately circled the drain around it. <laughs> I th yeah, I think you did. Yeah. Um, and maybe that explains why I feel more comfortable in a, like a grassland savanna environment than the mountains or the big trees in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Because evolutionarily, you know, part of our narrative was grasslands. I they make me feel safe and warm. Yeah, I was just gonna say, so I, I, I feel the same. Like when I go into a big city and I, I can't see the sky anymore, like it makes me anxious and I feel like claustrophobic and just like so on edge and I, I don't like it. Like I will never live in a big city. It's just, it's not for me. But I've also heard of people from the city, they travel through the middle of the country and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so exposed. So they, they feel the same kind of like anxiety and like, they're like, oh, what do I do? And like, it's, it's scary to them. And it's so easy if you are from outside the Midwest, it's so easy to be like, oh, there's nothing out here. But the grassland is just as diverse and amazing and awe-inspiring as a forest or as the ocean. So yeah, I don't know. It's fascinating. It is. So I feel like we've laid, we've laid some good groundwork here. If people want to learn even more, which hopefully they do, what resources would you guys recommend? How, what's the, what, what ways have you all learned more about the grassland? Ooh, that's, 
a good question. Okay, well, um, <laughs> there's always our website, grassandgoofies.org. Yeah, like, is this plug. the time yeah. where we plug ourselves? I was like, I was for sure. Textbooks have I read recently? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we we uh, grassland groupies try to do our best to consolidate some of that information out there, and it's an ongoing process. There's a lot of folks doing a lot of great research on our North American grasslands. Um, and we put out a newsletter that is a literal newsletter where we pick out like grassland news that's happening uh, and send it to your email. We also have a podcast called The Best Biome, which is just like a perpetual argument for why grasslands are literally the best biome, objectively <laughs> speaking, on the planet. It's, it's a really good podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and, you know, if you're looking for more info on Kansas stuff, there's always, you know, uh, the Kansas Herp Atlas, Kansas Mammal Atlas, but it can be hard to find uh, information that's more on like the ecosystem level. So that wasn't helpful, was it? Hang on. Help me, Nicole. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was, I was going to say, it's, it's really hard to learn more about grasslands because nobody cares. Hey, that and is not so, true. <laughs> well, it, they just, they have a PR problem. <laughs> and therefore nobody cares. And that's why we're here. And that's why, you know, Kansas Wildlife Federation and KDWPT and, you know, we're all working towards getting people to really appreciate these ecosystems. Like Rachel was saying, a lot of our information actually comes from like textbooks and scientific papers. And those aren't always accessible, um, both because you can't find them, but also because they're just not written to be accessible. So that's something that we've been struggling with and why we even started Grassland Groupies. So yeah, it's really hard. If you want to find out information specifically about like our our plants, um, kswildflower.org is an amazing resource. Um, if you want to find out more about birds, eBird or allaboutbirds.org is a really, really good resource. And then also the Kansas Herp Atlas and the Mammal Herp Atlas, as Rachel said earlier. Yeah, those are all good resources. And I feel like those, like, like you guys were saying, so those all cover kind of the components, mm -hmm. but there's no one really doing the holistic grasslands picture. Well, until you guys came along, you're kind of <laughs> filling that niche for people. But yeah, because I use all those websites and resources, but you're right, it's missing the ecosystem mm -hmm. component. Yeah, the good news is a lot of people are uh, right now recognizing that grasslands do need to be conserved and they are a lot of like you know big national organizations are really turning their eyes onto grasslands yes. audubon has a really great page detailing um a report on north american grasslands and birds that depend on them world wildlife uh has some really cool write-ups on individual grasslands things that like mm -hmm. you've probably if you're from Kansas, at least never heard of, like the Palouse grasslands in North America or the Chihuahuan grasslands. Did you know that the Chihuahuan desert is a grassland ecosystem, <laughs> at least in a huge part of its range? So uh, there's some really cool places doing uh, a lot of great education work or at least trying to, to start that too. So we can send you guys with some links. Yeah, that'd be cool. And you know, you just brought up a good point about these other grasslands. I've always wanted to know more about the Argentinian, the Pampas <laughs> grasslands, because a lot of our non-native ornamental landscaping plants just weirdly come from Argentina, mm, like yeah. Pampas grass. So it'd be cool to kind of understand what Pampas grass looks like in its native 
region. Oh, oh, it goes so much deeper than that too, because I mean, like half the birds that I've mentioned that are migratory species actually spend the winter in the Pampas. So yeah, like there we're connected to that entire continent and, uh, uh, that sort of temperate grassland region in the bottom of South America and like Argentina and Uruguay, um, those birds are often the same birds we have here. Dixisles, um, the buff-breasted sandpipers, golden mm-hmm. plovers, upland sandpipers, you know, it, it's amazing. They have metalarks too, but they're red and black. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how much like Kansas those regions are. And you know, with something like birds in particular, I, I don't think I mentioned this at a certain point, but there's a reason why I keep bringing up birds besides the fact that like, I love them. Um, but we really do use grassland birds as sort of an indicator for grassland health because birds out of, you know, every other organism out there are number one, super dependent on grassland habitat types you know, they're nesting down in the ground. They, they have some really specific habitat needs. So it's a great way to see if the grassland is healthy by whether or not they can survive there. And number two, they're very visual. They're easy to survey when they're singing and displaying. And so they're a really good indicator of our health. And so, you know, a lot of our conservation work has to do with looking at those species. And in terms of our long distance migrators, we've really got to look at how our neighbor's grasslands are doing. And there's been some really cool collaborative work going Going on. We just heard from a researcher here in Kansas at a talk recently um, who works side by side with folks in Uruguay that are doing research on the same birds he's researching up here. So there's some really cool partnerships going on. And I just love like how global birds are and how <laughs> it reminds us like Kansas isn't alone, not only in our love for this ecosystem that some people seem to not like. But in the fact that people don't always like this type of ecosystem. I don't know. I met a woman one time who uh, said that Goyaz was like the Kansas of Brazil and it wasn't going to be very pretty. And I was like, I'm sorry, there's a Kansas in Brazil. And we like bonded so hardcore over how like people don't even like the grassland. and it, But it's so cool. And like there's all these neat birds. And it's like there's – ah. There's so many people out there like us that love these ecosystems and that would fall in love with Kansas if they knew there was a Goyaz in the United States. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. And, you know, a lot of these habitats have like one thing in common, and that's that whatever you see on the surface of those habitats is just like the tip of the iceberg because, you know, like here in Kansas, in the Kansas of Brazil, most of the grassland is underground where you cannot see it. Yes, absolutely. And again, there's some really cool, pretty recent research that is kind of turning what we thought we knew about prairie roots on its head. So historically, you know, these plants, we've always known that, you know, a 14 tall, 14 foot tall, big blue stem can have 14, 16 feet deep roots. But we also know that, you know, tiny little coneflower can also have super deep roots. So we've always thought that these roots were used to get water that's super far down in the, in the soil. And yes, prairies are very dry, but 
that's not what these roots are used for. Uh, our prairie plants actually get most of their water and even their nutrients in just the first like six inches of soil, even, you know, the first couple feet of soil when we're talking about water. So if they're only using the first two, three feet of roots for that purpose, like what is the rest used for? <laughs> and there's a couple of different theories out there. One is it's a really good anchor. So if you're, if you live in Kansas, you know this already, but it's extremely windy on the prairie. And if you have these giant roots reaching way down in the dirt, that's going to help you stay in place and not get ripped out of the ground. This is also really useful for keeping uh, dirt, uh, our soils healthy and keep it from, you know, blowing away. But obviously the, the plant isn't necessarily doing that. It's just a nice side effect. But these deep roots also are super important for storing energy. Again, these plants thrive on disturbances. And when we're thinking about fire, that's getting rid of most of the above ground plant matter. But if they can store all their energy down in their roots, they have plenty of resources in order to regrow. So lots of different things that they can use them for. And this is a whole nother rabbit hole. I, I, I try not to get too lost, but <laughs> it's fascinating that we always thought that it was for water, but that's not true at all. Yeah. Do you think it also has to do with, so this is the first time I'm hearing about this too. This is cool as heck. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, on our, our prairie environment, there are so many animals that utilize the below ground space too. And a lot of those are feeding on the plant material that's below ground. Does a part of that dynamic affect like how deep these roots go as they're trying to store energy? I'm sure. Yeah. And just how many roots they have. Cause a lot of them also, the roots will spread out pretty far. They don't just go down, they go out as well. And if you have a lot of things munching on your roots, then you're going to try to just make your roots as big as possible so that there's something left over so that you can regrow if need be. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. Cool. <laughs> and if people want to see prairie roots, I know the Flint Hills Discovery Center, right, Lindsay, they've got a amazing yeah. root. Yeah, yeah, they have like a whole Just, underground tunnel that you can yeah. pretend like you're getting immersed under the soil in the grassland. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's super cool. I know that um, in Wichita, the Great Plains Nature Center has like a, a tube of big blue stem roots sort of to give you an idea of scale but you can also mm -hmm. just look up pictures and I have no idea how people do this but I've seen a, a photo of a woman um, from I think a plant society holding like a big blue stem and somehow this long like Rapunzel hair sort of <laughs> like streak of just the bare roots that they managed to pull out somehow and it's just absolutely mind-boggling yeah, there, there's there's a uh, place in here in Kansas that actually grows them like inside of tubes, like they bury a whole tube in the ground no. and then they dig it up and they by hand, they take like little paintbrushes and they scrape away all the dirt so then it can be used in educational purposes. No. I want one. It's like 250 I bucks. I want one. I don't need it, but I want it so bad. No, we How would that. you keep it clean, Nicole? I don't know. Would you oh, vacuum you can, it? You can put it <laughs> Uh, once it's extracted, you can put it behind glass or put it in like a tube or something. So, yeah. okay. I was imagining it just in your bedroom. Oh, I mean, like, maybe, who knows? Draped <laughs> over a chair. In your backyard. <laughs> Drape the blue stem and like put like a, like, you know, medieval cone, like with the little like drapery coming off the tip of it, you know, on, on oh its my head, gosh. like it's a hat and like have her like the, her as in the big blue stem just sitting yes. in the window waiting for Amazing. 
I don't know, cool craft project (laughs) ideas. Cool. So I think on that note, let's wrap up with a challenge question. Rachel, Nicole, I was hoping you guys could give our listeners some kind of a challenge, whether it's to go visit somewhere or learn a couple things or really anything grassland related. What do you think? I challenge, this is Nicole, I challenge every single listener, go out into a grassland. I don't care where it is. We have worldwide audience, I'm sure, but go out into a grassland, take all of your social media, your electronics, turn them off. Don't worry about that. Spend 10 minutes and just stand or even lay down in some grasses and just take time to absorb everything that's going on around you. Listen to the birds. Well, put on bug spray. Well, yeah, put on bug spray so you don't get ticks, but you can observe the bugs. The bugs are cool too. Without the bugs, you wouldn't have those cool birds flying around. So yeah, take 10 minutes, take note of everything that's going on around you. Look at the different kinds of grasses. Look at the flowers, look at the bugs, look at the birds. Yeah, just take the time to like really take it all in and not from a road. Get in there. Get in there. Don't trespass. Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) Public land. Okay, cool. Public (laughs) land. I'm going to do that. Okay. Well, shoot. I was going to say go hug some bunch grass, but that sounds (gasps) very similar to what you said. So um, while you're out there, yeah, it's much more crunchy. (laughs) Find, find like a big, like when I say bunch grass, I mean like it's like growing like in a big old tuft. It's very huggable. I want you to hug that. Like let it like rest its little grassy uh, seed pods on your shoulder and give a little pat. Um, And then the first grassland bird you see, give it some finger guns for me. Yes. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) Very specific. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. When when you have that distinct memory of giving a cowbird or a meadowlark or something finger guns, you're going to be like, wow, that was a cool bird. And then maybe you'll go like, I don't know look it up later or something or just appreciate it more and honestly that's all we really want out of the world if if you do one thing I hope it's just appreciating this really cool resource that we have right in our backyard that's all it has to be cool great well listeners can find you at let's see grasslandgroupies.org yep on twitter we are at grasslands rule and uh our podcast is the best biome Okay, awesome. We will link to all those in the show notes. Rachel and Nicole, thank you so much. This has been really inspiring. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at kswildlifefed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, The Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.